0: Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand.
1: For this episode, I'm joined by Chinese American women's wear designer, Peter Somp. What advice would you give to
0: uh, a designer coming out of school that didn't have that business skill set? Know what you're good at and know what you need to get somebody else to do. designing. Is, is a very small piece of the pie. In your mind, what is the
1: difference between fashion
0: and style? Fashion provides a dream. Again, at the end of the day, it is how do you communicate your authentic brand message in the best way possible.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in the fashion district of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. For this episode, I'm joined by Chinese-American women's wear designer, Peter Somm. Peter, thank you for coming in this morning. Hey, Doug. How are you? Good, good. Well, so let's get right into it, Peter. Uh, You've worked at some major houses uh, over your career, interning at Michael Kors and Calvin Klein while in grad school at Parsons, uh, then working full-time at Bill Blass and Tommy Hilfiger. So... Going back to your school days um, and those internships specifically, did the internship experience at uh, those two brands enhance your experience and and what can you what can you say about that as juxtaposed by what you learned in the classroom?
0: I think internships are a crucial, crucial part of the educational experience. What you learn in a classroom is is one thing, but what you learn on the job witnessing you know even if you're just doing sorting buttons or you know hanging samples you're seeing a whole machine go and at that point uh you know michael was a smaller business not that multi million or billion dollar business it is today and
1: he was there he was there
0: there was probably 12 people in the office uh he answered the phone i answered the phone the design team was like six people five people um so that was a great experience, and then uh, Calvin at that point was, you know, a larger company, and so it was it was a great way to see kind of how two different companies worked. And for me, those were so important on, on every level to to really experience that. And not only that, you're at backstage at fashion shows with top models. That's so cool. <laughs> at a very young age, right? Yep. Yeah. How,
1: how old were you at that time?
0: I had gone to uh, Connecticut College first, and then I went to Parsons. So at that point, I was 25 or so, maybe. Okay. so The salad days, I guess. Yes, yes.
1: Um, Well, so let's talk a little bit about the state of design education here in the U.S. Um, Are schools like Parsons, FIT, RISD, are, are they getting it right? I mean, are designers graduating with all that they need as a toolkit, or are there gaps in in what they're learning?
0: I think what I've seen from having done dress critic stints at Parsons at SCAD, which is Savannah College of Art and Design, um, and seeing what the students are doing at other, um, other design schools, now, I think they're up to speed. I think it definitely took a while to break the traditional curriculum of, um, you know, the standard way of working. But the industry, obviously, as we've all seen, has had a huge sea change over the last 10 years. And now, finally, I think what we're seeing is um, design schools embracing this, uh, really hope letting their kids shine in terms of multidisciplinary cross cultural uh, influences and techniques and and technology, and I think you're seeing you're seeing you're seeing it. And I think the kids coming out have, um, it's not just one way of succeeding now. And I think you see that in the industry itself is not one path to success. There's many different now.
1: How how about the business elements of starting one's own brand? And that's obviously not the path for every graduate. You know, many go into big houses and, you know, stay there for decades before launching their own brand. Some designers stay at a big house for their entire careers. Um, But given the proliferation of emerging U.S. brands, do you feel that the entrepreneurship, the business elements are taught in those design schools or at least mentioned enough so that uh, young designers, once they hit the ground, have a sense of, of what they should be hiring to, to fill in terms of gaps of knowledge?
0: I think more now than ever, um, the business side is being made super, uh, super you know, critical in terms of the curriculum. You know, I think it's interesting so many of the companies that have been started in the last five to eight years are started not by fashion designers, but by VC people, private equity people, tech people. So, mm-hmm.
1: Who often have that background, an MBA in their yeah. pocket or, you know. And, and, then they're,
0: it, and then they're hiring the design talent to, to fill in where the product, you know, product is, 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 is needed, obviously. I mean, for me as a product person, product is king. But the piece of the pie of marketing and technology are huge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so upon graduation from Parsons, you began working for Bill Blass. And I know that was a close relationship. Describe for us this remarkable creator and his influence on you and your design process.
0: Well, yeah, working for Mr. Blass was um, an honor and an amazing experience because I think at that point there were only a few houses that operated in this sort of semi-couture kind of way. You know, Oscar de la Renta, Carolina Herrera, and Mr. Blass. And it was... Uh it was old school. You got in at nine, you left at five. It was um a- an amazing experience just to witness you know, the workrooms, you know, the-, the craft of making beautiful clothes. Um, and just seeing how, you know, the whole operation functioned. I, w- I was a sort of like a super wide-eyed um kid, really. I mean, I uh one of my main jobs was you know, making sure the archive was kind of kept in check. So for me, just wow. to disappear in that massive sort of locked-off room and look at all these, you know, pieces from even his previous, you know, Maurice Rentner days and everything was was a dream come true for a kid. Where
1: Where was the physical plant? Was it here in the Garment District or...
0: Uh Yeah, the, uh, 550 okay. 7th Avenue, and there was another outpost just down the street. So he had to two kind of places, but the mothership was 550, which again, a legendary 7th Avenue building.
1: And so given this is the laws of style, um, I- I'm curious as to how Mr. Blass dressed and presented himself in the office.
0: He wore a suit and tie every day. Um, I'm sure it was bespoke. I'm sure it was custom. You know, one of my favorite images of him is he would get his hair cut in his legendary office. So he'd be sitting in a chair. The barber would come. He'd have his, you know, his, his, um, the big thing they put on to, you know. Smock. Smock, yeah. yeah. And he'd be chatting away, sometimes smoking. Um, and the guy would be cutting his hair in the middle of this sort of beautiful office.
1: Yeah, that's very decadent. It's
0: He was a dapper, dapper guy. Old school. Yes.
1: Um. And it's perhaps a little-known fact that Mr. Blass uh, was the first designer in the U.S. who actually named his brand after himself, <clears throat> created an eponymous brand. Um, this is now, of course, quite common. Um, you yourself have an eponymous brand, Peter Song. Um, But how do you think this impacted his legacy? And and I guess embedded in that question is the question, how do you feel about the brand today
0: well i think it speaks to a larger question in terms of a a brand that is named after a person how does that live on um you know in, in in the u.s market like which brands have you have have sort of lived and succeeded past their predecessor and it's been it's been touch and go i mean i think you look at uh in Europe there's this huge tradition Christian Dior I mean you the names are endless so mm. it's interesting like what is what is going on in the in sort of the the American arena of a brand sort of uh living past its uh its predecessor's death um i think Mr. Blass, you know was very smart in how he built his business he was one of the f- first ones to have a full licensing world that again was very high low and this was also in a day where it was very difficult to do that in today's market designers are able to sort of bounce back and forth between what traditional sort of price points are and those barriers are pretty much gone in a lot of ways but back then if you, you know, if you look at halston when he did the jc Penney, he was dropped by i think it was bergdorf's maybe so i think mr blast was very smart um in being able to sort of balance that yeah
1: so yeah you mentioned Halston which I think is a great example of a a storied American brand which ultimately couldn't live past its its eponymous designer and um, has candidly struggled to find its appropriate place with consumers um, the 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 big powerhouse brands from the 80s and 90s I'm, I'm thinking Donna Karen. I'm thinking Calvin Klein. I'm thinking even even Michael Kors. Is that their fate once those individuals truly depart from their brands? I mean, obviously Donna is completely disassociated from her brand now, um, and and perhaps you know to to embellish the question. How do the European houses, or how have they in your mind, the Gucci's, the Dior's, the Fendi's, th- those are brands that are family names but have lived beyond the life of the of the first designer. How, how have we gotten it wrong as American designers <laughs> to to be able to maintain and establish that legacy?
0: Well, I think the one thing we have to remember is these European brands started in the 20s, the 10s. They started really their his, you know their history is is much longer so what i think what we have to remember is a lot of these european brands most of them were started in the first half of the 20th century even the 1920s the 1910s so the european sort of houses have a, a long standing tradition they've had a lot longer to sort of build up their uh their dna and and their sort of their market share so, the, the legacy, the, their know, legacy women exactly. and,
1: and men to a degree, but women who their grandmothers wore that house. And, yeah. you know, there's there's more of a history there. Okay, that's yeah. Uh,
0: and and so I think, you know, when you look at what I consider the pantheon of of great American designers, it's Donna, Calvin, Ralph, Michael. I mean, uh these guys have started uh much, much later. So it's yet to see really. I think that's sort of the big the question mark. You know, I think For the European brands, the way their fashion system was for many decades was the same, business as usual. You do a collection, the the customer, the store comes and buys it, this is how it went. Now we're in a phase where um, all companies are having to pivot and to really react quickly as possible to massive changes in the market. And I think, you know, the American... Uh, these sort of American stalwarts uh, are having to do that as well. So I think it's sort of a time we'll see kind of thing. Yeah. But I can't imagine a Ralph Lauren going anywhere after you know he passes. I mean, I think that's one brand that has created a world, a community, a DNA that is so ingrained into the culture. It's not going to go anywhere.
1: Yeah. And yet that amazingly active man is still at the helm of his brand um you know and so absolutely time will tell i i've always wondered if part of it is as simple as many of the european houses simply go by the last name as opposed to a first and last name you know all of those yeah. examples donna karen tommy hilfiger michael kors it's it's both names um, it
0: is yeah i i think i mean it you, it's going to be about what the product is, how they evolve. You know, all these companies evolve. How they reflect the times. It, it is that balancing. How do you reflect the times to stay current, but how do you maintain your DNA and your and your core heritage? How do you blend those? And I think that's always, you know, as somebody who's consulted with a lot of companies, that's always a fascinating, and really interesting and exciting proposition. So. Peter Somm, and I'm not addressing
1: you, I am introducing the company and your eponymous brand. Do you think that the fact that you worked for four eponymous brands uh, informed your decision to name your company after yourself?
0: I think, well, it's funny. I wanted to be a fashion designer ever since I was in fifth grade, so I was a little kid drawing. Uh, So for me, there was... Never a question. It was always a clear, straight line toward Peter Som the brand. Um, and so that's really how it came about. I think when I started, there were probably – that was almost a given to name your brand, your name. I think now you see lots of brands like Rag & Bone or other names that are not the founders' names. And I think you know there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Um,
1: what are some of the disadvantages that you've encountered over the course of your company's history?
0: Well, I think you know, just referring to our uh, sort of talk about you know houses and their names living on after their founder, um, you know, will uh, the you know uh, again a, a company that is tied so wholly to a person's name and who they are, it's a Bigger leap to get to sort of the next chapter of that company's life without that person, uh, because again, you literally—it's the name of the person. Um, You know, I mourn sort of a Jeffrey Bean, like, oh my gosh, you know, this amazing talent who is now, you know, it's it's shirts and ties, and that's that's what it is. But it's not sort of the artistry it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, a theory or a rag and bone, or I mean, there's plenty of other names uh they may have a better sort of chance in terms of a longevity because it is the brand name is the DNA, not the person, yeah
1: yeah, well, and from the investment perspective and and the legal perspective, you know um, legal advisors um, who have clients who are on the investing side are often in a challenging position to try to uh, convince their clients, the investors, that it is a riskless proposition investing in an eponymous brand because there is so much risk that is wrapped up in the individual. I mean, I will cite John Galliano, perhaps, as as a good example of someone still living, but whose name has been tarnished by the incident in Paris and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, perhaps one would say his personality. But how does one diligence that? Yeah. Um, to be able to determine that you're dealing with someone like a Peter Somm who is professional and who will do what he says and you know that you've got both a great designer but a great spokesperson for the brand versus someone who is more risky um and you know you ask that question at one point in the individual's life I mean obviously people change um and you yourself we'll get to a point at a later stage of your life where things may be more or less important for you um and that may inform your design and your view of brand so i do think this isn't a question as much as a statement from um you know the not so cheap seats of the investing <laughs> public it's uh it's it's fraught with more challenges when you're investing in a brand like that as opposed yeah. to a theory or a rag and bone, or a Warby Parker, which is a completely manufactured name.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the sort of the value proposition on a human, like a, a person's name and the legs that it may have to get you where you want to go, are, are really based on that person. You do see a lot of brands now that, like Perry Ellis, where it's become something completely different, um, and you know, or you see a Kate Spade, which is now doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with unfortunately the sad sort of may she rest in uh, hor- peace, absolutely you know, horrible sort of yeah. sad passing of of the founder, but now that brand uh, is is doing well. So it's really I think about brand management and how ha- you know there's there's really a team of people. It has to be that magic mix of people at the helm of of whatever company it is to be able to take that company and transition it into into the next phase of its. Of its life, it is about leadership. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the people. Yeah, power to the people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, on that point, you know, having having helmed your brand for a number of years now, um, what advice would you give to uh, a designer coming out of school that didn't have that business skill set? Uh, and how important is leadership on the business side? Um, and and maybe some of the positions that are important to fill so that a designer can design and focus on brand and create story and do the thing that he or she is is best at?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing to um, understand is, you know, know what you're good at and know what you need to get somebody else to do. It's really acknowledging that, like, okay, I'm good at design, I'm good at product, I'm good at, you know, storytelling. You know, the all the other parts – are, is that and that's a big part. The other part um, is is vital. Otherwise, you're doing. It's a really expensive hobby. Yeah. Um. I've often said that designing is is a very small piece of the pie. It's a wonderful piece of pie, and then that's the piece of the pie that that's the whole reason why, like one gets into this business as a designer is that piece of the pie. But there's a huge machine that is the rest of the pie that has to happen for your piece of the pie to be able to get out there and to be seen and to be worn and to be you know um to be uh viewed to by the public. So leadership is at all levels is crucial from the design side, from the business side, you know, the marketing side, production, that supply chain part. There are crucial pieces of the puzzle that have to all work in harmony and a lot of times it doesn't but a lot of times it does and is it difficult
1: to find skilled people in managerial roles who understand the fashion industry i mean this is maybe you know we started with education Mm -hmm. and now i'm almost flipping to um you know the education of young executives who come out of mba programs very few of which i mean nyu is is one example Mm -hmm. of of an mba that is focused on the fashion industry but um is there a, a bit of a dearth of, of talent that has that kind of a background to understand supply chain and marketing and brand from an executive perspective?
0: I think, you know, finding somebody that has the entire package that's, and can work with a creative person is, is really sort of that the key to unlocking the puzzle. Um, I think, working with creative people is a different nuance. It really is. I mean, we we can be moody, we can be in introspective, we can be in our heads. It is a different kind of thing. And you have to be able to manage that and you have to be able to manage, um, again, like all these other pieces. So I think it to find somebody that can sort of balance all these, it's a juggling act, really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think... There's been an increase, obviously, in sort of the interest in fashion over the last 10, 15 years. Project Runway, all these other, you know, social media, everyone is seeing fashion. It's something that is, again, personal to everybody. Everybody wears clothes. Everybody, that's, and that's how you express yourself personally. So everyone has a personal sort of affinity with clothing and how you would dress. So but that doesn't always make you a good fashion executive, that doesn't, it, there's not always a direct translation there either. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, from my perspective as a legal practitioner, um, I, I very much take to heart your comments on on working with creative people. I mean, we look for associates and other lawyers to hire laterally um, who do have that that gene of being able to not only explain to a creative person difficult concepts, legal concepts, um but but also pull from them what they want i mean a lawyer as a as a as a service provider is really only as good we're just an instrument to do the will of the client and if you don't know what the client's will ultimately is you may be doing a great job that's not the right job yeah um but but back to the importance of apparel and how it applies to everyone um and switching gears a little mm-hmm. bit um in 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 your mind, what is the difference between fashion and style?
0: Well, I think that's a interesting question because you know they they say and this is I don't know if it's an old adage or whatnot, but they say fashion you can buy, buy fashion you can buy, style you were born with it, and I think that still holds true. I think you know somebody can wear a white t shirt in a certain way, and it's a t shirt from J Crew or the Gap and it looks like just a T-shirt. Somebody else can wear a T-shirt and know how to roll the sleeves slightly or tuck the shirt in slightly in a certain way. Uh, it's Style is, I guess you can say, really an attitude in how you carry yourself. You could be wearing two a $2 pair of shoes, and you could still have a certain um, elegance or air about you. And I think mean that comes from self-confidence and knowing who you are and the ability to express yourself, the ability to sort of dress for whatever occasion comes about. Fashion, for me, is is clothing. It is clothing that does you know, again, that begs to another question what is clothing versus fashion? Fashion provides a dream. Fashion is aspiration. It's it's beauty. It's, you know, clothes, clothing is really one of the three fundamental needs. You know, food, clothing, shelter. But You know, where food can just be McDonald's or it can be organic, you know, local, beautiful heirloom tomatoes. Same with clothing. It's the same thing. It can be just your basic whatever or it can be the most beautiful haute couture.
1: Well, so on to your personal style and on to (laughs) our four W questions, which um – is a feature of every part podcast um, largely for the benefit of our listeners who aren't tuning in uh, and watching us on youtube but the what who when and why of how you came in dressed today um, what peter what are you wearing (laughs) just in terms of products not not who uh, not the brands
0: Uh, i wear a lot of black t-shirts or navy t-shirts um and a lot of Well, I'm actually wearing black pants as well.
1: Yeah, you're doing navy and black, which is visually a subtle transition. Yeah, I do
0: love navy and black together. Um, I do usually wear a white sneaker. That gives me a little exclamation point, I guess. And indeed you are wearing white sneakers. Um, I do wear khaki too in the summer. It's funny. Every summer I tell my friends, okay, this summer I'm only wearing black, navy, khaki, white, and stripes. And they're like, okay, so that's like every other summer. And I'm like, yes, you're right. (laughs) I tend to dress in a uniform, and I think, um, you know, I think I, you know a lot of my fashion folk. You know, we spend so many hours looking at prints and patterns and imagining people wearing, you know, colors and everything. That again, it's just like I just want to wear something simple and clean, and I can just, you know, do what I got to do.
1: I, I think it. Uh, one one of your former colleagues, um, Michael Bastian. We were chatting about menswear in the summer, and um, what he said to me, which has always stuck with me, was navy and white, always right.
0: True, yeah. very, very true.
1: Okay, so, so who you know uh, of the brands? You, you, you've, you've got you know a light t-shirt, short sleeve t-shirt, light pants. You've got your sneakers. Who? What? What are the brands represented here?
0: Uh, these are Acne. T- I wear a lot of Acne t-shirts. Uh, I think they're. I like a sort of slightly heavier cotton. Um, these pants, believe it or not, are Uniqlo. Uh, sure. I, as far as the high and low, the low, I usually Uniqlo is one of my go-to's. Uh, this is so. Was of, the
1: T-shirt? Did the T-shirt retail for more than the pants?
0: Probably, yes. Okay. Yes. So I, you know, you always in your head do the cost per wear kind of like a thing, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna wear these T-shirts like until they're a threadbare, um, and then then and then they'll probably turn into sleeping T-shirts. Uh, the pants are. Uh, the Thomas Meyer and Uniqlo collaboration. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to stick with sort of all, a lot of the same brands. if it's on the higher end, Margiela, Acne, um, some Officine General
1: and and Peter the watch, the glasses, the shoes, and the bag.
0: Because we're oh yeah, I'm Fashion, wearing...
1: is, fashion is more than just <laughs> apparel, right? It's accessories.
0: Um, the only accessory I wear is really is uh, this Rolex. It's was my dad's. From the early 60s. Um, and like I don't have a piercing or a tattoo or nothing. I'm like a newborn baby, but I do wear <laughs> this Rolex. Uh the sneakers are uh Stan Smith's, um again, cheap and cheerful and a bit ubiquitous, but I have to say they are practical. I like the with, ones with the navy blue, I not do, the not yeah, the green. I do the navy blue, and then this bag, uh, it's funny, uh, it's a nylon Prada. Top handle with the shoulder strap is I do appreciate a hands-free moment um, with the shoulder strap. But I had been looking for just a bag that I could throw under an airplane seat or in the overhead compartment. It wasn't too precious, wasn't too structured, and this kind of fit the bill. So it's, um, I've kind of gone full circle back to like 20 years ago when I was buying all that piranha- nylon stuff. Right. And the glasses? The glasses are by a Japanese brand, uh, T, uh, True Vintage. Oh, my God. What are they by? T what uh they're a Japanese brand. No, I'm actually T True Vintage. I totally forget who they're by. Um
1: This is this is a common problem actually with branding eyewear. I mean we work with a lot of eyewear, both manufacturers and um, you know, folks who yeah. wind up in licenses with them. There's very little real estate to actually provide the branding on.
0: So. There is, there is. The logo's on there, but it's a, a cool Japanese brand. Uh, which I'm gonna we'll we'll, not even we'll, try we'll to put like, that in the lead yeah, in. You know, exactly. we'll
1: we'll put that in the Twitter or Instagram feed. Okay. Well, the next question is when, and, and by that question, I mean seasonally. Um, any of these products of any particular season that you're aware of, because I think my anecdotal evidence is going to show, at least with many of the men that I have on the Laws of Style podcast, that they have no idea what season what they're wearing is from.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that reflects, you know, kind of how we dress, you know, in general, you know, even how we design. It's designed pretty much the same all year round and then you may be thrown a few heavy sweaters and a few coats, but that's pretty much it. I mean, I think, I know the pants are a spring, summer because they're kind of a lighter cotton these t-shirts, they're part of – they run it all the time. Right. So it's – Yeah, I can just go in and And buy. by
1: season, I certainly mean – I mean, you're, you're clearly spring-summer. This is all light. But I mean 2018, 2019, oh, right, yeah.
0: 2015, you know. The only reason I know these pants is because that collaboration just happened. But these t-shirts, yeah, it could be at any time at any – I can walk into any acting store in, in the world at any point and, and – um, they'll have this T-shirt. Yeah. So that's sort of a weird comfort.
1: And then, of course, the why. The why question. So why this particular ensemble, as as uniform as it is, and we've known each other many years, you, you often look like this, but um, <laughs> for today, any particular why to, to put this on?
0: Well, you know, we're here in New York City. It is tropical and humid and, and kind of gross out. Uh, and yeah. I just I was really dressing for practicality and running around and being in the office and, and whatnot. So... Um, practicality does, practicality does inform a lot of my, uh, sartorial decisions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, in, in the book, the laws of style, I elucidate a bunch of guidelines for men to dress in a manner that is capable and elegant, because at least for me as a legal practitioner, that's the way I think of my, of my law practice. That's the way I want to be perceived. Um, given your role as a designer, and in particular a designer of women's wear, um, how do you want to be perceived through how you dress? And so what do you think your sartorial choices say about that?
0: I think as a designer, technically all bets are off. Uh, you can wear whatever you want to wear because you're the quote unquote creative. Um, I usually um, stay to the same color palette, so uh, which is darker, um, mm-hmm. I think. It, it sort of conveys kind of um, a little bit of an authority and sort of like, okay, this person's creative. I I, I do appreciate um, sort of basic building blocks of a wardrobe, you know, T-shirts that are a little bit nicer, like this acne one, or, or really clean, beautiful pants. Uh, I do think an unconstructed blazer is actually really important. Um, you know, in my field, you don't have to wear like a tailored sort of, Jacket and and pant necessarily at any point, uh, maybe a tuxedo, you know, when you're going to a black tie event. Right. But for me, I have a whole slew of sort of unconstructed blazers, uh, whether they're engineered garments or Acne, that can I can just throw on over this and just change the shoes to um, like a brogue and mm-hmm. and kind of be like dressed be, up. Yeah, I feel a little sassy and snappy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and I think that's that's a great listen uh, lesson for for many men that there are deconstructed suits out there, unlined suits that are extremely comfortable, um, but still read suit, still read, you know, if not highly tailored, still tailored. And you can throw a knit tie under that with a dress shirt and you can look very work appropriate if you worked in an office, um, as a lawyer or banker or other, um, as a women's wear designer, how do you think these questions of of personal presentation, particularly for someone in in the workplace in a in a, in a say white collar workplace, uh, are different for women?
0: I think the women in the in the working place uh, there's a bit more of a minefield in terms of presenting oneself because the choices are much more vast. You know, men if you're in a corporate environment, you put in a suit, you put in a tie, you're, don't think about it. You can own three suits and just rotate them. I mean, right. and, um, so, yeah, the question is, you know, for women, dressing appropriately and, you know, making sure that you feel great and I think that's my job as a designer is to make sure you can put something on, zip it up and you don't have to think about it for the rest of the day and I think that, is that balance between practicality and and sort of and design making sure you can meld all these things
1: together do you design for a particular woman in mind as you're as you are going through that process of creation is is there a woman or a a subset of women that you are thinking about
0: I think about a lot of the women in my life, Uh, friends, um, family members who are professional, they have families that are busy, they want to look great, they like fashion, they're not obsessed with it, but they want to look great, and I think, for me, the important part is to understand what they want, and again, as a man, I will never understand truly what it is to wear this woman's clothing, so... I I rely on these women to to tell me like does does can, does this dress the will my bra strap show mm-hmm. can I get it on without somebody else is you know is the length right when I sit down I mean these are things that you know I I need I need all my women around me to yeah. to help me because well,
1: who who are some of your muses?
0: I mean I think there's so many women in my life that are um you know, just vital. Um, My friend Christine Kim, she's a curator at LACMA. She's, I've, we've known each other since college. She has, you know, she has uh two beautiful kids. You know, she lives in LA. Uh, Rupal Patel, who mm-hmm. I've known since day one of my line, who's now at SACs, And she's been able to, you know, balance work and life and, and the demanding schedule. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, I've always said, you know, the, if there's nothing uh, more sexy than, than a woman who hasn't looked like she's tried too hard. And I think that I'm maybe borrowing that from Mr. Blass. So he probably said that. Right. Uh, because he was the king of sort of the evening skirt and the cardigan, you know, and the sweater. So for me, I always want to make sure that a woman looks effortless. Uh, that she, you know, it, it's more that somebody can, will notice her when she walks in the room, not what she's wearing. And I think that, to me, is that nuance
1: yeah, the statement is understatement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And back to your expression or distinction of fashion and style, I mean, you you definitely mentioned confidence. And when you can put something on and not think about it again, you're kind of inherently confident, right? You are – you're confident in that choice of garment. You know you look good. And then you can exude confidence, which, of course, makes you look even better. So – yeah it's, that's totally it's a it. great cycle of design so uh, i'm curious so so i'm a socal guy you know born in born in la you're a no-cal guy mm-hmm. <laughs> um from san francisco uh bay area is is there anything about san francisco that creeps into your design is there a san francisco aesthetic is that a thing
0: it's a it's a thing you know i think that there's a northern california laid back kind of ease which, uh, that's a little bit crunchy. Um, you know, I grew up in, in, in the Bay Area in the 70s, so there is there is some crunchiness and, and some bohemian kind of feelings happening. So I think that's maybe where the effortlessness comes in and that ease and that sort of sense of, uh, you know, the colors and the the textures and the proportions that I always love. I mean, every time I go back to see my family in San Francisco, I'm amazed at the beauty. I mean, you're in Pacific Heights and you go down mm-hmm. that hill and you see the entire Bay Area. Yeah. And whether it's foggy or there's a sunset and there's, or there's 50 sailboats in this bay, it's always like, wow, this is real. It's not a movie set.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, traditionally, you know, we've spoken about menswear and womenswear, and traditionally there's been a very clear dichotomy between those two. Um, I am now seeing a a real trend towards unisex offerings, um, and, and gender fluid design. Um, they incorporate elements of both menswear and womenswear. Uh, is this, is this the future? Does this, does this resonate with you and and do you think it has legs or is it just a trend? I think...
0: you know, fashion is always a reflection of our society and kind of where we're going. And I think, obviously, you see in culture the um, the increased visibility of transgendered, of, of sort of um, non-binary identification, and kind of... I think fashion is a reflection of society, right? So you're seeing an increased visibility and acceptance, which is an amazing thing, of trans people, of people that don't identify with traditional, you know, sex and non-binary kind of identification. So you're seeing this um, melding of kind of traditional gender roles in society and the visibility is, is greater and greater. And I think that the that reflects in, in fashion. You see companies like um, The Salting, you know, mm-hmm. where they're doing unisex um, sort of linen like shirt slash tunics. Um, I know another company where they're doing these big kaftans that are, you know, um, sort of for men or for women or for anybody. Um, so I think you're going to see more and more. I think it'll be interesting. Again, it's sort of like we, we shall see how it how it kind of plays out and how far it can go, and how, it, it becomes really more about you know the product itself uh, and the storytelling around it slash marketing. And how do you create a community? And I think I mean that speaks to the bigger question in terms of you know companies now. It's about companies now that are resonating are creating communities. So I think I think that's you see that a lot in these uh gender neutral brands starting, they are creating community because they're are, they're really at the forefront of this of this uh movement.
1: Yeah. Well, and interestingly, you know, we, we have seen more and more. Successful direct-to-consumer propositions, um, and and to a degree, this this is you know this is a branch from that tree. Insofar as I think traditionally in a wholesale model, you'd have real problems trying to sell a unisex line because who would you call the w- women's yeah. the women's buyer the men's buyer? Where would they put it? You don't you fit
0: know? in a traditional box exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. But but on that point. Um, and and speaking to to your um observation that many of the new brands are actually started by Wharton MBAs and Harvard MBAs Stanford
0: th- yeah everything with yeah. tech
1: backgrounds um you know the costs actually to start a brand if it's a direct to consumer brand have have arguably never been higher because what one needs to do is is vertically integrate as much as possible and that requires a very expensive built out e-com platform um in the past, if, if one was reliant on wholesale accounts, you could simply design, you could wait for the orders to come in, you could hopefully through factoring or other, you know, financial um, bridging, uh, pay for the orders, mm-hmm. ship them to the wholesale accounts and and wait for the money to then come back in and, yeah. you know, bite your nails while you were doing that. But ultimately, you didn't need to come up with so much seed capital. Um, does that does that resonate with you as you you know look at your brand and you know where it is now and where you want to take it?
0: I think the the sort of new direct to consumer model is um is is kind of what's happening and it's interesting because you are again the the the, the company is allowed to communicate directly with the consumer at every level marketing level P, social media PR level and at the product level. And again, so you really can immediately see who's buying what, where they're buying. You really have sort of direct access to analytics and kind of the information that in the past we would have to beg our stores for selling reports. But these were sort of very high level, not not very granular selling reports where you just kind of understood your sell through with with direct to consumer you can track your you know your sales to the region to the, the zip code you can really understand where the customer is resonating is you know the customer is um you know seeing your product and and that where your product is resonating and then you know if you want to back into brick and mortar you have informed decisions about right. where your key markets are because you've already seen sort of the wide sweep of you know of your consumer,
1: which is interestingly why many of those brands have done that, and, and yeah. Warby Parker stores are popping up, yeah. and, and you, you saw the proliferation of Bonobo stores or or showrooms. Yeah, so to speak. I mean, I
0: think that speaks to the again the importance of brick and mortar. I mean, I think you know five years ago everyone poo pooed brick and mortar is just going to die, and I think what it is is just changing. And again, we speak to you know the importance of experience of building community. Um, clothes are. Physical things that people want to touch and feel and but it's not they want to understand more about the brand and what it's about and if they feel like they can identify with that brand How do you do that uh, Instagram can only do so much, so that's why I think all these brands are really backing into brick and mortar because at the end of the day people do want to sort of experience the clothes mm-hmm. and you experience clothes in 360 whether it's around your body or in the space that surrounds you.
1: And, and speaking to additional costs, you know, as soon as you have customer acquisition and, and you're taking customer data, you're in a highly regulated world of, of consumer protection. Um, as soon as you're in brick and mortar, you're in a lease and dealing with landlords. And so your legal fees are undoubtedly high from an early stage. Um, this all speaks to those companies being fairly... Uh, fairly immediately, well funded by the venture capital uh, community, which is not a traditional model for designers to start brands. Do you think that that will harm, um, you know, potentially the next great crop of designers, be they American or European or Asian? You know, anyway, mm-hmm. that 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 the model is now, to a degree, driven more by the money by, side, more by, 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 by the data, tech side. Yeah than it is by some creative who just has such a pull to put their creation out there.
0: I think it's an interesting question because I think you see there is a white space there. you know. And I think for the last few years with a lot of these direct consumer, direct-to-consumer brands who have been super successful because of these analytics and data, product has been developed, not designed it has been developed based on data um and they've been smart in most of these companies have have a very focused product mix so again you know uh Kuyana, like very edited uh, mm-hmm. you know everlane very edited very focused it's not like the old collections that i used to do where you had 80 styles you know right. it is focused and and the supply chain is locked in and you have every piece of that puzzle. So I think there is that white space for, you know, dialing the dialing the needle back a little bit toward, you know, the creative part and, and, and product that is designed and that there is a point of view. So I think you're going to see sort of, again, that pendulum kind of balance out a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: Good point. Um, so, collaborations.
1: You've done many over your career. Um Maybe walk us through, and this is perhaps for emerging designers, perhaps for young lawyers, uh, the process of of a collaboration becoming extant, right? Um, How does it start? Do you use a licensing agent or or some brand manager? Do you cold call brands that you like, and and <laughs> what's the what's the process? And I'll sort of you know chime in from. You know, someone who's worked on collaborations with you um, as to what what the legal role is in that uh, timeline.
0: I mean, in terms of collaborations there, can happen in, honestly, any of the above ways. You know, you can have a brand manager, you can cold call somebody. Now it can be an Instagram connection where two brands or people behind the brands feel a synergy and a friendship. So really, I think now, in terms of sort of getting a brand acquisition, it is kind of – there's many channels to get there. In terms of how you build out the brand collaboration, you know, there's it, there's really only a few ways to do it. It's either, you know, a, a licensed sort of royalty model. I mean, there's a few other – or just a straight fee or a percentage of sales or whatever it is. Um you know, brand collaborations to me are, are at, when I was doing them are one of the most powerful ways to expand your community and expand uh, expand your brand recognition because you're really reaching you know again another pool of consumers right, right. and you're creating
1: a press moment of course yeah you know there's going to be this drop of usually, you know, if um, I I find the most effective ones are are limited. I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of retailers have found that those are (laughs) successful as well. Um, And so, so you reach out maybe through Instagram, maybe, maybe you met somebody at a store opening. Um, When, when do you call the lawyer? Do you work out the business terms so that the economics are fairly set? Or do you reach out to us and say, hey, you know, we know you've done a lot of these, what how, what should I be proposing in terms of the economics?
0: I usually would um, bring in a, a lawyer like you sooner than later, because I think you want to, I want to speak to you and understand kind of, okay, what should the deal terms kind of look like? So I can go back to the to the other, uh, to the collaborator, and really with an informed kind of you know checklist of what I should be expecting, depending on who's papering the deal. Right. Um, you, yeah. You. You really want to make sure you understand what's going on. Like you know, I don't want to sit there and negotiate for two weeks or three weeks or a month, and then come to you, and then we have sort of backtrack and sort of like sort of look at everything. Yeah. I, I think it's it's a much more efficient use of time to uh, for me to call you. <laughs> right at the beginning or, you know, within the first, you know, few meetings and be like, okay, this is happening. Like, you know, I just want to let you know, and this is kind of what we're talking about. And then, you know, you'll have call outs that I won't even think about because that's what you do. You know? Yeah.
1: I mean, usually, so from a business perspective, the collaboration is going to put more risk on one party than the other, because one party typically will be handling the production, right? So if you do a collab, with an eyewear manufacturer with this cool Japanese company that we don't know the name of yet. <laughs> um, they're going to be making the glasses, right? They're going to be making them whether they have their own facilities or they have relationships yeah, with, with yeah. factories. So, so therein lies their risk. Cause as we know, you know, they're going to have to pay for that upfront and, and the product isn't going to ship. So it's about the balance of that risk. And so if that's my client, I'm cognizant of that risk yeah. and perhaps I'm wanting some financial co- contribution up front so that that risk is mitigated. Um whether it's a royalty, whether it's a straight fee, that is really back end. That's that's the mm-hmm. parties, you know, paying each other. The 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 main other component that is important is the messaging, is the marketing element because really it it's 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 more stuff. It's not it's not that this stuff necessarily must come out. It's Two brands, you know, sort of creating their own unique story yeah. in terms of getting together. And so the messaging of that and the consistency of that is very important to document and have agreement on, um, as well as the length of time that you can do it, particularly if, you know, the the, the cool Japanese eyewear manufacturer may be something that you you'd be happy to have that brand alliance and affiliation for, for years. Yeah. If it's Kohl's. Maybe that's something you want to be a short drop in a short time period because seeing Peter Somm's name associated with Kohl's over and over again, no disrespect to Kohl's, but it it would be a down market, you know, place for you to to have your products. Um, I'd be cognizant of wanting to limit that in time and very much restrict that and how they can use the trademark. Um, So those all get wrapped usually into a term sheet. Or, or a letter of intent that, that outlines the basic terms of the deal, the, the the most material terms. And the parties would agree to that and often would even sign a non-binding term sheet or letter of intent so that when they get to a long-form agreement where they really are kind of paying legal fees in earnest because it's a fully drafted agreement that has a license and has you know the restrictions on use and has agreements on use, um, they're sure that they have a deal in hand and that the economics are, are set. And, you know, it, it's very much a dirty pool to go outside the bounds of an agreed term sheet. It's not necessarily illegal, but it typically means the parties say, well, you know, you agreed to this back at the term sheet stage. You're now changing your mind. I don't want to deal with you. Um, and then that process of of negotiating the agreement, we would work with the client, you or anyone else, but it would really be from your perspective, is this any different than the term sheet? Because when it comes to an indemnification clause, when it comes to representations I'm making about my trademark, I trust my legal counsel to know what the right balance of risk is. Um, if you have someone on the business side at your company, that might be a closer relationship that we have with them. But you know, when when we as a firm are dealing with true creatives who also happen to be the CEO of their companies – we're kind of, you know, taking that role of of making certain business decisions because, you know, we we do it so often.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really that what's your return on investment. The marketing piece is a huge, especially for a collaboration, you know, it's about again storytelling and it's about expanding your brand reach and I think you really, I mean, we've always entered into collaboration strategically and it is about that mix of Okay, the marketing, the storytelling, the sort of another piece of the puzzle of of the brand and how we can reach more people, and then there's the royalty side. I mean, I think you mentioned Cole's. My my Cole's collaboration was a one month drop, and Mm -hmm. it was massively successful. And I think that um, was an eye opener for me in terms of understanding that you know, even just in terms of on the creative side, that my design. Uh, aesthetic our, our design can translate at, at all levels and that it can resonate with consumers at, at that shop at different price points but um it is really about that strategic miss, risk um uh, i can't talk that strategic mix of right. of all those things you talked about um and it has to work for all parties at the end well
1: so um
0: at the CFDA
1: Awards this year, uh, Kim Kardashian received uh, an Influencer of the Year award, and um, the the role of the influencer, you know, Kim in particular, but but there are many um, with with a similar amount of weight, if, if if not as much. I mean, she she definitely can move the needle for a lot of brands. Um, what are your thoughts on the role of influencers in the fashion industry? Is 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 it good for brands? Does it detract from brand and, 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 and mixed message? Um, and how do you think it's being used?
0: I think the role of influencer is, um, you know, I started my brand years before influencers were, you know, uh, like a capital I, you know, they right. were, you know, <laughs> my clients, you know, women about town, you know, we call them socialites if you... Uh, if if you had to, um, now this now social media influencers have a capital I and they have dollar signs attached to, kind of you know what they wear and and how they communicate it
1: and and set price points yeah. and, and and rate schedules yeah. candidly um and, and their you know their posts are regulated to the extent they're actually paid for it So yeah. you often see you know those hashtag ad and you know, sponsored ad. exactly.
0: You but, know, there's no denying that influencers um, can move the needle. I mean, obviously, a Kardashian or a Hadid uh, can move your ne- the needle and increase your brand recognition like exponentially, like within a day. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, I think, obviously, the key is to sp- make sure that the influencers speak to your brand and your DNA and who they are. So it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. Uh, you really have to focus and understand which brand ambassador or influencer really can um, communicate your message the best way, and that you have a synergy with, because it's really all about an authenticity, even though there, it's sort of a transactional kind of situation. You do want to make sure there's an authenticity. Does this person like your brand, or is it going to feel like it just a hashtag ad? Um right, right. So I think again at the end of the day it is how do you communicate your authentic brand message in the best way possible. And you know, influencers are one again, one piece of the pie. Okay. Well, Peter,
1: <laughs> it's been great to spend the morning with you. That's a wrap. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for coming in. Um, for your for your efforts. You'll receive a copy of the Laws of Style. <laughs> Hold
0: on, say, uh... Oh there we go, look at that. And can we zoom in on this no.
1: <laughs> and listeners you too can obtain a copy of the laws of style on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or my publisher the American Bar Association's website um, just type in the laws of style type in Douglas Hand type in sartorial excellence for the professional gentleman any of those terms <laughs> should should get you there um, and also feel free to follow me on hand of the law at Twitter and Instagram Peter any, any social media shout outs or, or Other uh, final words?
0: Uh, uh, Follow me on Instagram. Mine's at Peter Song. And, uh, you know, I think uh, this is a great talk. Great way to spend a morning. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Doug. Bye now. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at hand of the law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.